Welcome to another episode of the SaaS Podcast. I'm your host, Omar Khan, and this is a show where I interview proven founders and industry experts who share their stories, strategies, and insights to help you build, launch, and grow your SaaS business. In this episode, I talk to James Evans, the co-founder and CEO of Command Bar, a user assistance platform that makes your software product easier to use. In 2019, James and his co-founders were working on an edtech product to help teachers give coding feedback to students. They quickly got frustrated with their product's complexity, so they built a search bar tool to help users find features and complete tasks more easily. And then they realized the search bar tool was a more interesting product. Despite having no customers, they managed to get into YC, but they struggled to get traction as they spent most of their time having to explain what their product did. The breakthrough came when they made a Chrome extension that visually showed their product working in potential customers' own websites. James would make Loom videos for each potential customer, showing Command Bar integrated with their app and how it could help. His cold emails had a whopping 30% response rate and helped land their first 10 customers. But the team kept struggling to explain their unique product and its value. At one point, James realized they were spending over 80% of meetings with potential customers just explaining how Command Bar was different from other options and what exact issues it solved. It made it incredibly difficult for them to grow the business more quickly. However, today, Command Bar is a seven-figure ARR SaaS business with over 20 million end users across hundreds of customers like HashiCorp, Freshworks, and HubSpot. They've grown to a team of 40 people and have raised $24 million. In this episode, you'll learn what specific strategies and insights the founders gained at YC that helped them improve their go-to-market approach, how developing the Chrome extension significantly helped Command Bar demonstrate its value to potential customers. We'll talk about the exact steps and process James followed to create a cold email campaign that achieved a response rate of over 30%. And we talk about how the founders figured out how to turn around their struggling startup and grow into a seven-figure ARR SaaS business. So I hope you enjoy it. Are you looking to sell your online business or buy one to start your entrepreneurial journey? Discover exciting opportunities with Bupos.com. Bupos is the number one platform for buying and selling profitable online businesses and the first to offer built-in acquisition financing for qualified buyers. At Bupos.com, you can explore their exclusive listings, browse listings from other marketplaces, or submit your own deal for approval. Bupos can offer pre-approved financing for recurring revenue businesses, allowing you to access fast funding with no personal guarantees. And their experienced M&A advisory team supports you every step of the way. To learn more, visit sasclub.io slash Bupos. That's sasclub.io slash B-O-O-P-O-S. Sign up today and get qualified to sell your business or find your next deal. Is your team struggling with spreadsheets that can't keep up with your workflows? It's time to switch to Jotform Tables. Jotform Tables is an all-in-one workspace that lets you collect, organize, and manage data seamlessly. Not only can you create online forms to gather data directly in Jotform Tables, but it also serves as a powerful tool to manage and analyze the data collected from your existing Jotform forms. You can also import spreadsheets or enter information manually, and all your data is stored securely in one place. Jotform Tables makes collaboration 
collaboration a breeze. You can share your tables with a single click and work with your team in real time. Say goodbye to version control issues and hello to efficient teamwork. Get started with Jotform tables for free today at sasclub.io slash jotform. That's sasclub.io slash jotform. Hey, are you struggling to grow your SaaS business? As a SaaS founder, you know that having the right tools is crucial for growing your SaaS business effectively. But with so many options, choosing the best ones for your needs can be overwhelming. That's where the SaaS toolkit comes in. This handy guide covers the 12 essential types of tools you need to supercharge your growth. Inside, you'll find a detailed look at tools successful SaaS startups have used to scale to seven figures and beyond. It gives you specific examples and makes practical recommendations to help you choose the right tools for your SaaS business. Don't miss out. Visit thesastoolkit.com to to download your free copy and unlock faster growth for your SaaS business. That's thesastoolkit.com. James, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Do you have a favorite quote? Something that inspires or motivates you that you can share with us? I don't have a quote, but I have the modern equivalent, which is a YouTube video. Uh, it's a Steve Jobs interview, very on brand for a founder to choose. I love this video so much that I quoted it in my wedding vows, believe it or not. And I'll try to, yeah, no, right. Uh, I'm a fun guy. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll try to summarize it. I'll probably butcher it. Everyone should just go watch the video. But basically, Steve Jobs talks about how there are two people, two types of people in the world, people who sort of play the game of life that's given to them. So sort of the quests of like rising in the career ladder, saving a bit of money, going on increasingly, you know, nice vacations, giving their kids a good education, stuff like that. And then there's another group of people that, sort of pushes against the walls of the game and realizes that all the stuff, like all the, the items in this quest and the quest themselves were created by people who are no smarter than they are and really like no different fundamentally, you know, maybe different circumstances, but fundamentally exactly the same type of person. And it's not really like, of course, like a lot of people see that as a call to arms to like be a founder, or create products, create companies, like influence the way people live, leave your mark upon the world. I don't think it like needs to be that. Like, I don't think everyone should be a founder, but I think it is really empowering to realize that like everything you experience, like the wallpaper, the, uh, you know, the rewards program on your credit card, like all that, all those things are created by people that are no really different than you are. And you can be one of those people if you want to be. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Uh, I, I know the video you're talking about. I haven't seen it for a long time, but when we publish this, uh, we'll include a, a link to the video where we'll embed it. Obviously, after your video, that will come first. <laughs> okay, uh, so tell us about Command Bar. What does the product do? Who is it for? And what's the main problem you're helping to solve? So we call Command Bar a user assistance platform, which is a three-letter uh, or three-word phrase that we've agonized over and we've used a lot of different ones over the years, user personalization platform, UX optimization platform. But We've stuck with user assistance platform, but I realize it doesn't actually describe what the product does. The context, oh, I'll get into that, but the context for why we exist is, I think it's pretty crazy that like we have these things called computers that make us like so much more productive and give us access to like the entire sum of human knowledge. Imagine explaining this to someone from like 200 years ago, we have these magical things. But a lot of the time, like the way we interface day to day with computers, like the net experience we have is frustration, is the frustration of like, I want to make the computer do something, have some intent, and I have to translate that intent into the language of the user interface, the keystrokes, the you know, 
which file, which menu do I click on, which tab, you know, what is the feature I want called? And so we end up getting really frustrated so much so that sometimes we like do this thing called rage click where we like jam on the mouse because we're so frustrated. And that has always like been a very weird paradox to me. Like these computers are so powerful and so magical, yet so much of our experience with them is frustrating. And the best solution that has existed for a while to sort of help users use software and help users learn how an interface can be useful to them are pop-ups. Those things, you know, those things that show up in interfaces that are like, we just launched a new feature or like, you seem new here, take a tour. Those never really felt like the pinnacle of user experience to me so much so that I think like most users just dismiss them. They have, you know, fatigue or blindness for those types of experiences. And so they don't end up actually being very helpful. Okay. So what is command bar with that context? Command bar is basically a platform for other software companies to make their products easier to use that are uh, through the form factors that are not just annoying, untargeted pop-ups. So we have a variety of ways that product teams, customer teams, marketing teams can embed experiences into their products that can help users in a personalized way, all the way from a kind of a natural language co-pilot interface where a user can just sort of describe what they're trying to do and get a kind of personalized walkthrough or have the co-pilot actually just take an action for them to nudges that show up in the interface, kind of guide the user to what they're trying to do. And give us a sense of the size of the business, where you're in terms of revenue, size of team, number of customers, and all that. Yeah, so we're about, uh, I think, 40 people. We've raised like 24 million uh, so far in a couple of rounds. Seven-figure ARR business. Uh, been going for a little over three years. And in terms of uh, users or customers? Uh, hundreds of customers so far. Okay, cool. So I, I think one of the, the things that when I heard about command bar, I should say command bar, my British accent is still, can't shake it off completely. But when I heard about it, I, I imagined, are you familiar with Alfred, right? Or Raycast or something like that, right? So I was like a command bar, right? And I think it might make a little bit more sense when you talk about the story of how you guys started and what the first version was. And I think basically with, if I had to describe it today, it, it sounds like you're, you're kind of helping with some kind of user adoption type stuff. It helps some with onboarding. It can be helping help people with support. So there's a whole bunch of use cases that Command Bar can help with. Uh, one thing I wanted to try and understand was when you said that you 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 interface with other software products, and let's let's take the example of like a chat widget or something like that. Are, are you are you powering their chat widgets or are you the chat widget and everything else that happens behind there? Like I, I was just trying to understand like where, where where do you draw the line in terms of what's their product and what's your product? It's a it's a great question. Yeah. So the the physics of Command Bar, we are a layer on top of our customers' products. So most of our customers are software companies. You know, we work with web apps, mobile apps, desktop apps, some websites as well. You don't have to like identify as a software company to use Command Bar. Um, and we actually are, you can call them widgets, we call them experiences. Users interact with those directly. So Another way to think about Command Bar is it's a, 
product for any team at one of those companies to shape user experience without having to go through the kind of standard engineering flow. We're not trying to be like a no-code app builder. There's tons of stuff that I think, you know, should be built by engineering the kind of EPD team at a software company. We're trying to peel off what we call the user assistance experiences. So that could be a nudge, that could be spotlight search. We actually call, we've started calling the original product that you alluded to spotlight. Um, so similar to Alfred, our copilot interface, these are experiences that users interface with directly and then teams can uh, shape without um, having to write code. Um, and we just feel like, we felt like there was an opportunity to, kind of, like I said, peel off this assistance layer that's relatively um, or should we think should be relatively consistent across products. And then tell us a little bit about Copilot, because I watched uh, a little demo you put together about that. And I think people might hear what you're saying and say, well, that sounds kind of similar to some other products that maybe I've used for onboarding support, blah, 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 whatever. I think Copilot kind of took it a little further. So just just explain that a little bit in terms of what end users can start to do. Yeah, so Copilot is our newest product. And it looks very much like a chatbot. And like kind of the, the basic physics of it are very similar to a chatbot. The key difference between Copilot and a chatbot, in our view, is that we refer to Copilot as a quote-unquote user assistant, not a chatbot. Uh, what does that actually mean? We call, it, we call our product a user assistance platform, so it's like pretty high praise to call one of the products a user assistant. The big difference is uh, we don't think responses, the most useful responses are often not textual in nature. So imagine with a chatbot, you ask a question like, how do I create TPS reports in some B2B app that your employer is forcing you to use? The chatbot, there's a gazillion of these, will probably answer with like a list of 14 steps in, in, a, good, in a good case. You know, first you go here, then you do this. A bad case, it might just say like, oh, here's an article you should read about that topic. Well, that's like a lot of work. Like in our experience, users really don't enjoy like reading multi-page manuals for doing kind of flows that they think should take like 30 seconds. And so what does Couch Copilot approach that problem? If you ask that question to Copilot, yeah, it can respond with a text-based answer if that's how the company tunes it or if Copilot thinks that's the best way to respond. But it can also, it wields other tools. So one tool it wields are walkthroughs. So instead of here's steps one through 14, oh, it sounds like you're interested in creating a TPS report, click here, I can show you how. And then it's going it to, it looks and feels very similar to a product tour, but it's initiated by the user asking a question and it's personalized for them where they are on the product, what features they have access to, et cetera. Another thing it can do is take action on behalf of a user. And that could mean completing a flow end to end, or it could mean starting a flow. So going back to the TPS report example, I want to create a TPS report. Okay, great. What do you want to call it? Do you want to copy the one you made last week? And then that could either take the user where they need to go to you know, finish completing the report, or I could just ask them a series of questions to complete the report for them using the company's API. So it's basically like more helpful than a chatbot. The mental model we have for how a user assistant should work is imagine you had a human, like imagine every company, every software company employed human user assistants and they would send them, you know, as part of the package, you sign your 100K enterprise software deal or whatever, 
as part of the package, every user gets a human user assistant who shows up at your house or your office. And whenever you're using the product, it's kind of leaning over your shoulder, there to answer questions. If you go off track, oh, nope, are you sure you want to go there? That kind of mental model is how we want Copilot to feel for end users. So where did the idea for this come from? Yeah, you mentioned, you mentioned our original product earlier. The name Command Bar is kind of a vestigial name. It refers to our original product, the Command Bar. So the context was we, my co-founders and I, Richard and Benet, we were working on a completely different product. It's one of these classic, you know, working on one thing, uh, dog fooded something for yourself, and then decided that was, a, you know, ended up being a bigger, could be a bigger company. We were working on an ed tech product. This was a tool for people teaching computer science to give students feedback on their code. So completely unrelated to what Command Bar is today. We were a team of three. Uh, we were really good at talking to users, and we basically built anything they asked for for that product. You know, uh, there was a ton of feature requests, and we saw our only competitive advantage was just like speed. And so we built everything users asked for. And so pretty quickly, like the product became really top heavy. Uh, no one was using all the features. Uh, people were struggling with like basic flows. We we're getting a ton of support requests. And so we really didn't want to like redesign our UI from scratch. We felt like that's what like big companies do constantly, re, you know, redesigning their whole UI, all the, you know, taking into account all the jobs we've done, et cetera. We wanted like a relatively quick solution. Uh, and so uh, at the time, there was this pattern uh, called a command palette, which was like sort of becoming popular in some apps. It was, it was most popular in dev tools like Sublime and VS Code. There were some products like Superhuman and Linear that really leaned into this, this paradigm. This is the interface you can trigger with Command-K in these products. And we thought this was like a really great idea for our situation because it would allow us to create one interface, one like escape hatch, where if a user on our product was trying to do something, they could just like type what they were trying to do, and then we could route them in the product where they could go to complete the thing they were trying to do. They could use their own words as well. They wouldn't have to learn like our vocabulary. And so we built uh, a command palette for our product, and it worked amazingly. And it had all these like cool side effects. Like for example, we started getting all this amazing data about what users were trying to do in our product because they were telling us in our own in their own words in the search bar their intent. Um, and we got just super fascinated by this idea, but it felt like kind of a weird, like, com like idea to turn into a company. Like, are you really going to create like a component as a service and like put it in other people's front ends? Like, it just didn't feel like kind of a normal company or normal software structure. And so we basically treated YC as like a good idea Oracle, which I don't recommend doing by the way, like YC is not going to tell you if your idea is good. But in our case, like we just needed a nudge to like start working on the idea. So we wrote up the YC app for this new idea, command bar, the command bar. And then once we got into YC, we started working on it. Uh, well, let's talk about the first 10 customers. What did, you, what did you do to try and one like validate the idea? So you said you were talking to users and adding a bunch of features. So you, you, you joined YC, at what point, for how long did you keep selling this kind of version of the product? And at what point did you, you sort of realize, hey, this isn't quite the right product or market or whatever, and we need to, we need to change things. So just, just tell us about that process in terms of figuring that out, validating the initial product and kind of on the path to those first 10 customers. For sure. So we entered YC with like basically nothing. Um, which, by the way, 
for people, I think sometimes there's a misconception that like YC only accepts products or companies with like meaningful traction. Definitely not true. We had zero traction. We just published our YC app and like the answer to the question of like how much traction you have is awful. It's like, oh, we have four companies committed to using command bar. In fact, like one of those four companies ever ended up using command bar and they didn't even pay us anything. So like want to dispel that misconception. So we showed up with nothing. We just started, we just started building quickly and like trying to get other people in our batch to use it. That was one of the things that excited us about YC is we were like, oh, it's, there's a bunch of software companies in YC. We can probably get them to use command bar. And it went really well in the batch. Like we got our first 10 customers were all came from our YC batch. They weren't paying us very much. It was like 50 bucks a month, hundred bucks a month, but it definitely made us feel like, okay, this has some legs. So the, the problem with these wedge products, they're great in the sense that they're narrow, um, clearly defined. The problem is, in our case, like at that time, summer 2020, no one was like waking up. No product manager was waking up in the morning going, today I'm going to look for a vendor that makes a natural language search bar as a service. No like head of product was delegating the task of assessing natural language search bar as a service vendors to like someone on their team. So we had to create both budget, but also time for people to like understand our thing and be like, yeah, this is something that I want to experiment with. Because at the end of the day, like every novel mousetrap company starts off in the mind of a buyer as an experiment. Like I'm going to try this, see if it works because it's not a proven thing. And we would have like, you know, early conversations with people who found the idea interesting, but um, sometimes they wouldn't go anywhere. At, this is sort of like to the, to the, towards the end of YC. And the solution we found to this was actually it was inspired by a PG Paul Graham article where he talks about for his company, I forget what it was called back in the 90s. I think it was basically like a Shopify, um, early version of Shopify. He talks about how people didn't really want to pay them for the software to create a digital store, but they were happy to pay them to create a digital store. And if they use their software, then so be it. It's kind of like sell the work, not the tools. Um, and so we took inspiration from this and we started doing... We'd always been doing cold outbound to other founders, especially YC founders, um, but we changed it up and we started. We built a Chrome extension that let us actually sort of mock up or semi-spoof what command bar could look like in other companies' products. And so instead of like a cold email where we would describe the product and its benefits, we would just include these Loom videos and they would say things like, hey, we're command bar, we do X. We noticed these three flows in your product that seem hard for users to do. seems like they're generating a lot of chatter on your forum or whatever. Here's how easy they could be if you're using command bar. Let me show you. And I think we sent like 200 of those emails and got like a 20 to 30% reply rate. And that's how we ended up getting our, our first 10 like real customers the, besides the, the folks in the batch. Not that they weren't real, but they were just you know, much earlier stage. Okay, let's unpack that a bit. So w when you had that Chrome extension, what exactly was that doing was this when you introduced kind of like a chat widget or were you still in this no this is just the search bar we were just a single product company just doing that search bar through our series a got it okay all right so you you use this chrome extension and you you're basically like recording like did you record like 200 videos like it was was it like a video per website you it wasn't just some generic thing that you were sending out to everybody of like no no it was like a cust it basically allowed us to it's not that fancy for chrome extension it just allows us to allowed us to embed command bar is basically just javascript and so it allows us to embed command bar on any site for 
the person who's currently browsing. Obviously, we can't make it available to a company's users. They have to install us for that. And so it would make it appear. And then there's a bunch of things you can do in command bar, no code. Today, you can do a lot. Back then, you could do a few things, no code. And so we could set up some use cases and mock up others of users encountering a problem in the product, you know, typing something into command bar, and then seeing some result, whether that's like an action they can complete or it takes some teleports them to the right page. But yeah, we created, yeah, like 200 of these Loom videos. I think we whittled it down at my peak. I think I could do one of these in like 45 minutes because there's stages to it, right? Like you find the company, you got to log in, create an account, which, you know, we all know onboarding flows are super painful sometimes. Like you got to fill out the 14 questions or whatever, get, get an account, become acquainted with the product, identify like three, we always did three, three things that could be better. And then you create the, you, you mock up the command bar and then you do the video. Got it. Okay. And so you were using the product, each of these products yourself, identifying like potential points of friction and then showing them how they could solve them. Yeah, and it was visual. It was like, it kind of, I think it kind of made it seem like we had solved them. Honestly, I think there, that was part of what worked was it, it made it clear that it was pretty easy to get a basic version of command bar going, which like you can say, oh, it's only going to take a day to get command bar up and running. But like no one believes you because, you know, anyone who buys software is, is burned by claims that software is easy to set up that end up not being true. And so I think it was a bit of like a show me, don't tell me situation where if we could create this video, clearly we weren't spending like days building one Loom video for one cold email. So I think there was a bit of a proof point that it actually was like pretty easy to use. So it, it strikes me that, you know, you're, you're basically creating a new category here. And the Loom video is pretty smart because you don't have to try to figure out like, how do we explain this in an email in a <laughs> right. way yeah, that they understand what the product does, right? Like we'll show them a video, but rather than just right. a demo video, we'll actually show them what this could do on their website, right? And and so I think that's that's like super smart. I mean, it's it's a lot of work to totally. to do that, right? It's not like hey. Lo upload 200 email addresses into some outreach tool <laughs> and write a temp, you know, one email and whoosh, it's gone. This takes a lot of work. And I think that's probably why you got uh, such a high response rate from, from right. people. What did you do beyond that? When, when, when you use that to start those conversations, get to the first real 10 customers, as you said, was was that basically kind of your playbook for getting more customers? Yeah, there there was a, a second piece. I'll actually circle back to something you just said about the, the time required. Yes, these, this is not a kind of a quick marketing or sales hack. Like it, it definitely requires a bet. But I'll go as far to say that I love recommending this strategy to founders, not because it's efficient, but... I believe, maybe this is somewhat of a spicy take, I believe if you try this and it doesn't work, like you don't get replies or the replies are tepid, uh, I don't think your product is good. Or at least you're, maybe it's good, but you're really bad at talking about it or you have the wrong audience. If you really put the work in to identify pain, show how your product is solving that pain in an extremely customized way, like this isn't about sequence writing, this is like one-off emails and it doesn't work, something is deeply wrong. And I think that makes it worth it because being able to assess, I don't have product market fit in 200 hours 
is way faster than most companies determine they don't have product market fit. I think can save a lot of like wasted building. But to answer your question about what we did after that, pretty simple process. We get the meeting with this, this loom and then our whole pitch was like, try us. It's really easy. We've already done like 80% of the work, put it into the product and see what results it drives from users. And I think, and then we did that, did that. And I mean, ultimately you have to create value to convert those into actual contracts. But I think people liked that we were confident. They saw that we put in a lot of the work to get them ready to go. And I think, you know, everyone's, if you can credibly convince someone that you can move a metric they care about, that's like basically what sales is. Yeah. Are you an entrepreneur looking to buy a profitable online business or a founder ready to sell? Bupas is the number one platform for buying and selling profitable online businesses. With their exclusive listings, as well as listings from other marketplaces, and the option to submit your own deal for approval, Bupos has you covered. Plus, they're the first to offer built-in acquisition financing for qualified buyers of recurring revenue businesses, allowing you to access fast funding without personal guarantees. And their experienced M&A advisory team supports you every step of the way. To learn more, visit sasclub.io slash bupos. That's sasclub.io slash B-O-O-P-O-S. Sign up today and get qualified to start your entrepreneurial journey or sell your business at the right valuation with bupos.com. Okay, great. So when when we're trying to go out and sell uh, a product like that, there's there's a number of questions or objections people have. It, initially, it's like, what exactly do you do? What problem do you help solve is you you know is this thing right for me and and so you you talked about a number of th- things in terms of using the loom videos as a way to explain very clearly in a very relevant way, way what the product does and how how they can use it and what problems it helps solve and so i think that takes away a bunch of those issues but then the next part of it is what's the integration like how much work do i have to do to actually get this to integrate with my product. And I think you've described that, you know, whether it's JavaScript or, uh, you know, some code I need to add to my, my, you know, web pages or it's a Chrome extension. Okay, that sounds pretty easy. The second part of this would be is like, well, what about all the information that you're, you're delivering through this search bar? How much work do I have to do to get that data you know, your, your, you know, for your product to access that data. So what was actually involved and how did you make that easier so more people were, you know, willing to, to give this a try? Yeah, I mean, the, the way it worked then is, is actually still the way it works now. We just have more ways of kind of packaging the things people are putting into command bar for users and so we can show them in more situations. But the basic principles are the same. It's just a mix of sucking stuff up via integrations and manual curation. I think probably the insight we had is like, you kind of need both because some people really just want to import all the content they've already created and sort of see how a command bar does with it. Is it surfacing the right things at the right times? Is it picking up multiple ways users might be describing some feature using our semantic search or natural language stuff? And then there's also manual creation because there are certain situations where when a user types in like, how do I upgrade my plan? Like you really want to make sure that does exactly what you want it to do and is the fastest possible path to the user converting because those are like, you know, the real dollars at stake for that particular query. So there is a, there's a way to curate kind of specific flows in command bar, whether that's when a user searches for something or asks copilot a question, or if you really want to show like a particular nudge on a particular page, a particular type of user, you know, something like that. 
And there's also a kind of more of an autopilot mode where you kind of let command bar decide when it thinks it should uh, interact with the user in certain ways. Some people do all of one, some people do all the other. Our recommendation is a mix of both, kind of curate the, the flows that you know really matter, you're really opinionated about, and let command bar kind of pick up the long tail. And it's obviously iterative, but to answer your question specifically, in the beginning, the integrations and the kind of autopilot focus are really helpful. Even if the, co the customer is ultimately going to do a lot of manual creation, those integrations make it so they can get into a sandbox and experience like what the product is going to be like quickly. Time kills all deals. It's even worse with trials. We started a bunch of trials in the early days where people just like would never even use the product. And we were like, what the hell? Like, hmm. We thought we were like doing something wrong. I think the learning there is honestly just like people are busy. Uh, and if you don't make it like super easy for people to get that initial kind of 10% and, and get the dopamine loop of like, oh, this is really easy. I should keep building this. They might just never get there because something might come up. And so the integrations and the autopilot approach, I think, really help with that. Okay. Were there any other growth channels that that worked for you? Let's say, you know, beyond sort of first 10 customers as you try to get towards the first million in ARR, beyond the cold email with Loom videos, which sounds like it was working really well. And you shared that link with me with the with the Reddit AMA you did. I think we'll definitely include a link in the show notes to that so people can deep dive a, a little bit. And there's actually a, uh, you shared a Loom video with me as well, right? What, what, an example of one of those videos. Yeah, one of the ones, one of the, I think it was, I can't remember if it was a successful or unsuccessful video, but it was definitely from that crop. <laughs> yeah, but they'll, people get the idea when they watch that. So, uh, so beyond that, were, were there any other growth channels that you you tried that you got working or got working not really we, uh for us honestly we we cruised through our initial revenue milestones with the loom videos and just word of mouth like basically all of our big customers um in the early days just like came inbound which i'm incredibly grateful for i, I still think might just have been like dumb luck i think you know i think the product experience was pretty good so i think the kind of referral loop was working but we didn't really do anything to stoke it it just sort of happened um one learning from the early days on growth we tried a lot of content marketing in the early, early days. And by tried, I mean like we would do, you know, two or three articles about a topic. Like we, we weren't, you know, investing months in these things. Our approach was like, let's sort of try to uncover the channels that work for us. And with content marketing in particular, I think unless you can invest in it and feel okay about doing it and not worry about measuring ROI, you probably just shouldn't do it at all. You know, write the few blog posts that you want to refer your customers to over and over again and leave it at that until you get to a stage where you can do content marketing and not care about the ROI. Because I think at the early stage, probably through like series B, measuring ROI on content marketing is fruitless. And instead, we talk about it internally as measuring it right today at our company's stage. We measure the success of our content marketing basically by vibes. Like, are our customers telling us, oh, this is a cool article. Like, are we getting comments? When we post it on Hacker News, like, do people talk about it? Um, we don't really measure, like, how many leads do we generate from each post because it's so hard to determine, like, oh, okay, this person read an article and then they went away for two months and they came back. Like, yeah, you can try to torture HubSpot and other tools to kind of figure it out. But my thinking today is just don't measure it and don't do it if you're not prepared to be okay investing in it and not measuring it. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had an experience with with um, some founders who 
I, I think got into that. I don't know what I how I describe it, but it was like they they wanted to do content marketing, would try a little bit of it for a, f- a few months, and then want to wait to see before they invest in it again. Right? What type of funnel does it drive? Yeah, which which makes sense, but. The reality is, I think, with content marketing is you either need to just say, we're not going to do it. And you, like you just said, we'll just put some core pillar content out there that we think is useful and relevant, or we're just going to keep doing it. And we're just going to say, this is part of the strategy. This is a bet that we're making. But you're right. It's a huge attribution problem because the chances of somebody going on unless they're like the, the, you know, they have really high buyer intent and they're searching for one of your articles designed to, you know, convert them, start a trial. The chances are most people are going to visit your site multiple times. They might go and come across you on social media. They might talk to somebody else and whatever. And so what do you give attribution to? Okay. It's, I don't know. Right. I think you can do it at scale. Like I think there's, you know, you know, plenty of companies that are doing a good job of it. I've just seen so many early stage founders, they hear the advice, like you should run experiments. And then they're like, okay, great. I'll run experiments. I got to measure the results to run the experiment. And it gets so lost in the sauce of the measurement that they, first of all, it takes away from actually investing in the quality of the content. They kind of think of, and I think this is how I used to think about testing out different channels they think of it as like flipping over a card. It's like either this channel is going to work for us or not. And like our job is just to kind of do the minimum viable exploration of the channel and like see whether it works. And I think for some channels, like you can approach it that way, like ads, good good way to, or a good channel where you can actually be extremely ROI oriented from the beginning. I would caution like most early stage companies from doing any ads at all or even trying to experiment with it. But if you do, you can be ROI oriented. Whereas content marketing, like you just said, and like we've been talking about, like it's one of these things, or SEO is another good example where like it's a bet uh, and it's okay. You can be a good founder who runs experiments and still make some marketing bets, but just know their bets going into it and don't be dismayed when three months in you've generated no leads. By the way, it doesn't mean you can abandon, you can't abandon it. If you've been spewing out content and you're getting no signal that it's useful, like no one is reading it to your knowledge you're not getting any upvotes on Hacker News. Like, okay, yeah, then maybe there's something with your content, but don't abandon it just because it's not get, it's not converting leads. Yeah, yeah, totally agree. Let, let's talk about the category creation challenger a bit more. So you were you were initially in this position where it's kind of a new category. You're having to spend a lot of time and effort explaining it to people. Like, what does the product do? Then you moved into sort of digital adoption world where people start to get get what you do more easily but now you're also being compared with a whole bunch of other products like I was doing when we started this conversation I was saying oh chatbot onboarding you know in-app stuff and whatever how easy or hard has it been to make that transition and what are some lessons you've learned about how to stand out from the crowd? Yeah, so context was uh, we were a single product company through our Series A. 
And what we kept hearing over and over again from our customers was, are you a replacement for X? And X could be a number of different tools. Most frequently, X was a tool from this category called digital adoption that is, they're basically the pop-up companies. So at the top of the show, when I described Command Bar, I said, like, we solve the same problem as those in-product pop-ups, but we're not annoying. So we kept on getting compared to these other companies. And we would sort of just, like, shrug and be like, we don't really care about those other companies. We don't really, maybe, we kind of do the same job, but we're both trying to help users. Maybe if you help users so much with Command Bar, you can get rid of those vendors. But, like, we don't really have a take. Like, that's old school. We're new school. And we sort of just shrugged it off for a while. And we were like, we're creating a category. Our product is totally different. Like, you can't compare us to anything else. But we kept hearing this over and over again. And like you said, it wasn't lost on us that although we were growing well, we were spending a lot of time explaining what our product did to people. Like in a 30-minute discovery call, we might spend 20, 25 minutes like really helping someone understand what jobs did we do for them, what metrics could we move, what other tools we integrated with, who would the company would be using this tool, who would be the champion, would it be them or someone else on their team. And eventually we were like, okay, maybe we should take a look at this digital adoption category. Like maybe this, there is something here. Like maybe we should say, start saying we are a replacement for X or a you know, substitute for X. Um, and we took a look at it and we basically came up with some ideas for how we thought we could make it a lot better. We were like, oh my God, there seems to be like a lot of opportunity here. And it kind of made sense structurally. Like people were already doing things in Command Bar to make it personalized for users. Like you, one of the things you can do in Command Bar is you can create audiences which are basically like cross-sections of your user base defined by like what things they've done in your product, what plan they're on, what channel they came from, et cetera. If you're doing that for the purposes of personalizing the search bar experience, you can reuse those audiences in other ways to influence user experience. So we were like, okay, let's actually, let's lean in to what the market seems to be telling us. And instead of talking about ourselves as a totally novel mousetrap, let's talk about ourselves as a better version of this existing category that's trying to solve the same problems, but is doing it in a, in a new way. Um, and that was a, a very challenging like realization for, for me and the team, because for so long we had been like very dismissive of these old school tools. And it was like, well, well wait a second, we're going to build, like, we're going to build a way to do pop-ups in command bar for, for so long. We've been talking about how we hate pop-ups. Now you're going to be able to create a pop-up in command bar. Like that's blasphemous. Um, but I have to say like, it took a while for us to get noticed, and there are some kind of nitty-gritty tactics that we employed, things like leaning on review sites like Captera and G2 to really like create some social proof in the category and get noticed. Um, but if you compare like one of our discovery calls from this week to one of our discovery calls, say last January, so we went on this position journey basically all 2023, started in December. Today, we probably spend like four minutes of that product explanation part because the people, we kind of have that signaled to anyone who encounters Command Bar. This is what we do. This is who buys our product. These are the jobs we do. If you know anything about digital adoption, digital adoption is like a pretty mature category. It's already done the job of educating the market about why it's important to help users. Let's you know stand on the shoulders of that instead of starting from scratch. So the TLDR, I would say, is for most, in most situations and for most founders, creating a category is vastly overrated. It feels really fun. It feels like a grand intellectual adventure and you're like changing the world. How could you be like a me too product? But the, the uh, dynamics of selling into an existing market are often far simpler than selling into a totally new market that might never exist. 
so you said it took about a large part of 2023 to figure that out. What what were you trying along the way? I, I'm trying to f- sort of think about if somebody is in that situation today where they're getting on discovery calls and they're spending nearly all the time trying to explain what their product does, what, what are some of the steps that they can take to uh, make a similar transition? The first thing I would say is always listen to product comparisons. I think founders are really eager to talk about how their product is new and special. And so when someone says, oh, are you like X? The default answer is like, oh, sort of, but uh, here's how we're different. And I, I think whenever you hear that, first of all, you should listen and identify trends. If people are constantly comparing you to X, like you should go look into X. But I would often, if someone is trying to compare you to a tool, that's their basis of understanding. And it, you should answer in a more of a yes and way. And you should say, yeah, here are the ways we're exactly like that tool. Because at that point, you've created some you know, groundwork for you to explain how you're different. If you just jump into how you're different, they might be like, oh, okay, like, I just don't get this tool at all. So that's the first thing I'd say is listen, listen to those comparisons. Um, also seek those comparisons if you're not getting them. One of my favorite pieces of advice for founders that is applicable in like so many scenarios is ask open-ended questions, especially in uh, conversations with prospects. How did you come across Command Bar? Let them talk. A card I used to play in the beginning was like, people would ask, okay, like, can you demo the product? Like, what does it do? And I'd be like, yes, I'm absolutely gonna demo the product. We just redid our marketing site. I'm really curious what you think we do because you know, we wanna make sure our marketing site is doing a good job. And then you have to deal with the awkwardness because people thought they were showing up for a demo and now they're showing up for a quiz and you get them to explain what's in their head about your product. And that will tell you what they're attaching it to, whether they get it, they might just get it, in which case, amazing. Like maybe you don't have a category creation problem, but if they don't get it and they're constantly comparing you to something else, then maybe you should consider leaning into that comparison. Yeah. I like the way you, you describe that. Like if someone's saying, are you like whatever, starting by, instead of jumping straight into why you're different, starting by saying, yes, we also do X, Y, and Z. But in addition to that, this is what we also do, which is different or whatever, right? So I think, okay, great. So now I understand you're similar to that product. I understand what are the things that I would still be able to do if I was using your product. And then I understand what's different on top of that. It sounds so simple when you break it down now. I know, right? In the moment, it's like a heat of battle. It's really hard. I think a, a little framework you can use in these situations is when someone compares you to X, you can uh, start with the problems. Be like, well, that, that solves this problem. We also solve this problem. However, we do it in a different way to X. Here's how we do it. So at least you know they probably understand the problem and care about the problem, and so you can attach to that. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty cool. Okay, one, one, one kind of clarifying thing I want to just understand is you said that the cold email loom was basically the primary growth channel. Nothing else really worked. Today, you're doing a bunch more content marketing. And is is the is the email loom thing still the biggest growth channel for you today? We, I mean, we do do outbound and we do do looms. Um, it's one of many channels. We don't really have like a one. And if we did, I probably wouldn't tell you. Uh, one like amazing uh, channel. I think the my mindset shift on marketing in B two B SaaS 
has been in the beginning, like I described earlier, I think I was playing this game of like what channel is going to work for us because you hear these things like you've got to experiment, you've got to focus, you've limited resources, you can't do everything at once. Now, I actually have adopted the perspective of you kind of just got to be everywhere all at once, always, and try a lot of things and not expect any one marketing investment to 10x your top of funnel, but just do it all, whether that's the content marketing, whether that's ads, whether that's SEO, like do it all, have a perspective on how you're going to do it different and faster and cut things that clearly aren't working, but don't cut things just because they're not, they don't have the potential to be your biggest growth channel. In, in terms of being a founder, what, and you look back over the last few years, what have been, you know, maybe one or two of sort of the biggest struggles or challenges that you look back at on this journey? Uh, for me, like personally, I think something I've struggled with a lot is like how much to work, how much I should work, like what is the right amount of myself that I should be pouring into the company. And I've tried a lot of different things over the years and I've sought a lot of advice and I've kind of just come to the conclusion um, and I've started angel investing and this is what I talk to founders who I work with as well about is like, there's just no right answer to this question. And like, you just got to feel it out. I'd say if you're someone who like wants to work 120 hours a week on your company and like that works for you and you've structured your life in a way that that's like reasonable, like I think that's a beautiful thing. And like, don't let anyone shame you for doing that. I think if you're a 40 hour person and the company is doing well, like amazing, that's awesome. Like there's no glory in like pouring hours into your company and for the sake of pouring hours. And by the way, most people who say, you know, these grind set people, like who say they're working like 80 hours a week, they're probably doing like 15 hours of like actual work. There's a lot of like getting lunch. Like you may be in the office for 80 hours, but I doubt you're doing 80 hours of actual work because that's really exhausting. Some people can do it. Um, and so I think just sort of like letting go of trying to optimize this and just like, you know, intuitively working. And sometimes that means you got to work more. And I think part of the, part of the advice here is like the answer can change. And, and knowing when you should lean in or when your team should lean in is, a, I think, a superpower that some founders have and everyone should try to cultivate because it's even worse with the team because there's no way the team is going to sprint for 80 hours a week every week. It's just not going to work. Uh, and so you have to know when to push and when to rest. And that could be team-wide. It could be when a specific team needs to push, whether it's like sales trying to meet a number, or like product trying to meet a deadline. You kind of just have to apply this intuitive feel to your, your own work, but also the whole company and just realize there's no right answer. And, and no investor is going to like yell at you or no one's going to yell at you because you didn't put in 80 hours a week. I think hearing that is uh, helpful for, I, I certainly would have been helpful for me. So, so do you, do you feel like you have a better control of that? Like, do you, do you feel like you found the right balance? It ups and flows. Um, I think like I tend to overwork just cause like, like a lot of founders, I think I have an obsessive personality. And by overwork, I mean like put in hours that where the marginal utility is like fairly low. So I don't think I've like nailed it. My wife is very helpful. Biggest life hack, founder hack is like get a partner who can support you and check you. And we go on hikes all the time where I, you know, our topic of conversation is like a work problem. <laughs> it's like really useful. You can do like a mix of a mix of leisure and work. But no, I definitely don't think it's like a problem you solve because it's such a dynamic one. Yeah. No, my, my wife is a therapist and uh, she's she's very helpful in in 
uh, keeping me under check. And I remember when there was a lot of talk about uh, the four-day work week, and there was a whole bunch of companies going on about that. And, um, you know, I was like, oh, maybe this sounds really ex- interesting, right? Maybe that would be like something I could try. And I said to her, you know, I've just been reading about this stuff and maybe that's what, you know, I should do. And and she was like so nice and, and kind of sweet about it. And she just said, I think that sounds like a great idea, but maybe you could start by going from seven days a week to five days a week before you do the four day thing. And I was like, oh, okay. All right, uh, we should wrap up. Let's get on to uh, the lightning round. I've got seven quick fire questions for you. Uh, what's one of the best pieces of business advice you've ever received? Ask more open-ended questions. I think people tend to see question asking as an opportunity to sound smart and show like the integral of all the research they've done. But whether it's like a candidate or a prospect or a customer, asking a super open-ended question that requires like zero research often gives you way more insight than the smart question. What book would you recommend to our audience and why? It's a book called Never Split the Difference. I wonder if it's come up before. It's a book about negotiation that taught me to ask more open-ended questions. (laughs) I think uh, it's Chris Voss, right, who wrote that book. So I think he did a masterclass as well. Uh, what's one attribute or characteristic in your mind of a successful founder? I call this like scoutness. It's not a really clean word. Uh, there's a book called Ju- by Julia Galef called Scout Mindset that basically describes how like there are two types of people or different situations. You might be a soldier where you're trying to like defend a point of view, or you could be a scout who's trying to like uncover truths about the world, forming hypotheses, disproving them, forming new ones. Um, and I think there's a time and place for being a soldier as a founder. Certainly there are plenty of successful founders who've like had a vision of the future and just like made it happen and not listened to signals that might've said it was a bad idea. But more often than not, I think it's the scout founders who succeed, scouts who say, I'm going to go build X. And then they learn something about the market and said, you know what? X was a terrible idea. I'm now going to build X prime and exploit what I just learned about the market, especially at the early stage. I think a lot of founders think they need to kind of pitch an idea to investors and then go like realize that idea. And if they don't do that, they'll be considered idiots. In reality, like at the early stage, investors are betting that you're going to make a company work, not or a product work, not the the specific product that was in your seed deck. Yeah. Cool. Uh, by the way, I I came across that book uh, recently. It's on my reading list, so I, I definitely want to get around to it. It was when I was exploring this whole idea of like rational thinking. Uh, one of the books, uh, the other books I came across was um, Harry Potter and the Methods of Rationality, which is also kind of a related thing. I don't know if you've seen that. It's kind of like this basically um, fan fiction thing on Harry Potter, where it's all about applying rational thinking to the story. So I've been trying to go through that. And then I was like, yeah, Scout Mindset, definitely want to read that too. Uh, What's your favorite personal productivity tool or habit? I'm one of these these people who thinks we spend too much time on productivity tools and strategies. So I'm just like an Apple Notes guy, write everything down, triage layer. I wish they would let me change fonts. That's the only thing I don't like about Apple Notes. It is. I I wish they had toggles. That's my feature request. Who knows? Maybe one day. Maybe Tim Cook is listening. I doubt it very much. What's a new or crazy business idea you'd love to pursue if you had the extra time? Uh, I feel like this maybe already exists, but it seems so obvious to me, like an LLM-based accountability a coach who can text me the same way my wife texts me to keep me accountable. Did you work out today? And then if I don't respond, like pester me. It just seems like such an obvious use case. Yeah, love that. 
Uh, what's an interesting or fun fact about you that most people don't know? I'm a super boring person. Like my team gives me about this all the time. I think the two facts, I think the most interesting fact about me is that I um, used to be uh, play bass in a heavy metal rock band, like not a good rock band, like in high school. And my wife thinks the most interesting fact about me is that my favorite dessert is uh, raw marshmallow. <laughs> Love it. And, and finally, what's one of your most important passions outside of your work? Um, I started angel investing. I think like the topic of uh, founders angel investing, kind of controversial. I think more founders should do it. It's really fun and therapeutic to step outside of your own business and think about someone else's business in the context of like, should I invest in this or not? It's also just a really great way to meet other founders. And like, I think there's this dynamic sometimes in investing where it's like, oh, if you're the investor, you have to like bring the knowledge and it's like a very one-way relationship. But I've learned so much from the founders I invest in. Like it's a great hack for just getting, I think a lot of times founders like work in a vacuum. You don't really like see other founders at work, the strategies they use, how they write investor updates, what kind of progress they're making, what's, what experiments they're running. And angel investing is a, is a great way to do that. Cool. Uh, so thank you for joining me, James. Uh, it's been a pleasure. If people want to check out uh, Command Bar, they can go to commandbar.com. And if folks want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, Twitter or uh, LinkedIn. Twitter, I'm Dazzleoid. Okay, great. So we'll include links to those in the show notes. We've got a lot of things to add to your show notes. It's cool. Well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. And uh, I wish you and the team the best of success. Thanks so much. Take care. Cheers. Do you dream of owning a profitable online business or are you looking to sell yours? Bupos.com is the number one platform for entrepreneurs and founders alike. With Bupos, you can discover exclusive listings, browse listings from other marketplaces, or submit your own deal for approval. As the first platform to offer built-in acquisition financing for qualified buyers, Bupos makes it easier than ever to acquire a recurring revenue business without personal guarantees. Their experienced M&A advisory team is dedicated to supporting you throughout the process, ensuring a smooth transaction. Don't miss out on this exciting opportunity. To learn more, visit sasclub.io slash bupos. That's sasclub.io slash B-O-O-P-O-S. Sign up today and get qualified to sell your business or find your next venture. Are you still wrestling with rigid spreadsheets that slow down your team? Jotform Tables is a solution you've been looking for. Jotform Tables combines the power of a spreadsheet with the flexibility of a database. You can collect your data through customizable online forms and Jotform Tables automatically organizes and stores all the data submitted through your Jotform forms. You can also import and export files and collaborate with your team effortlessly. All changes are synced in real time, so everyone is always on the same page. But Jotform Tables is more than just a spreadsheet alternative with conditional formatting, data visualization, and more than 250 integrations, it's a complete productivity platform for your team. You can even automate tasks and workflows to save time. Ready to centralize your data, boost your team's efficiency, and take your productivity to new heights? Sign up for free at sasclub.io slash jotform. That's sasclub.io slash jotform. Attention SaaS founders, are you determined to scale your B2B business to that coveted million-dollar ARR milestone? I've got something that can help you get there faster. Introducing the SaaS Club newsletter, your weekly companion on the journey to SaaS success. Packed with proven strategies, practical insights, and exclusive interviews with B2B SaaS founders who've been where you are, this newsletter is your ticket to accelerated growth. Each week, in just five minutes, you'll gain access to a treasure trove of growth tactics, lessons learned, and insider tips to help you navigate the challenges of the early stages and scale your business 
close to seven figures and beyond. So why wait? Become part of a 4,000 plus strong community of SaaS founders and entrepreneurs who are already harnessing these insights to drive their growth. Visit sasclub.io slash newsletter and subscribe to the SaaS Club newsletter today. Gain the support and expertise you need to keep forging ahead on your SaaS journey.